Hello and welcome, all of you, for being back here on the Consumer Podcast. As always, it's your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background here on episode, uh, what is it, 124 on uh, July 20th, 2023. And we are so happy to have you back. Please rate the podcast five stars on Spotify or any of the other podcast platforms that you are currently listening on. We really appreciate it. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. Um, as a reminder, we did talk about this last week. Uh, we will be taking a break during the summer. Uh, so next week is our last episode. Um, and then we will have uh, about a three-week break until uh, August 31st, uh, which which I think is a Thursday. Let me write, let me double-check that right now on my phone here. Uh, that is right in front of me. Uh, yes, so August 31st is indeed a Thursday. That's when we will be back with new episodes. Um, and uh, yeah, so I hope uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, uninterrupted episodes for quite a long time now. I didn't take too much of a break, uh, but I do need one, and it's really hard to get guests in the summer. You all know that too. Um, this week we have uh, two topics for you. First of all, I'll be briefly talking about uh, uh, President Lula of Brazil, who has made some comments about the EU-Mercosur free trade agreement. And then we will dive right into the guest of the week, who is uh, Amrit Nanda. She's the executive director at Plants for the Future European Technology Forum. Um, and uh, she'll be telling us more about new rules on gene editing, uh, what that means for Europe, what it means for the plant breeding sector in Europe, uh, what it means for your food, and some of the misconceptions that people might have about gene editing. I did promise this last week, and we are getting to this topic. But first, let's start off with this. So President Lula of Brazil uh, is uh, talking about the EU-Mercosur trade agreement, and it seems that every week he's saying something different. Uh, but first, let's listen to Euronews and their reporting on it. Brazil's President Lula da Silva is warning against European protectionism. He says that the ratification of the EU-Mercosur trade agreement should happen by the end of the year. But he wants an equal partnership between the two sides. He was speaking in Brussels on Wednesday following a summit between the EU and Latin America where he made it clear that both sides have the right to protectionism even if it isn't the best way forward. A França é muito ciosa da proteção dos seus produtos agrícolas da sua pequena e média agricultura. So uh, here he is speaking in Portuguese and it's not dubbed as only subtitled in the video, so I, uh, I don't have that for you. But essentially he is saying that uh, so France has the right to protect its industries, uh, but so does Brazil. Um, and, and he feels that that's right and that's how it should work. Um, uh, but it means that in trade negotiations with the European Union uh, that one of them will eventually have to give in. Um, and I, I don't quite agree with that sort of perspective in which... You know, a lot of leaders these days look at trade negotiations as if it's something to win unilaterally. I think free trade ultimately means that both sides are winning, um, and especially consumers are winning because they are getting access to, to more goods. I think one of the important things to know as well is that the EU-Mercosur trade agreement foresees a couple of uh, quotas. So it says um, there's a certain amount of uh, beef, for instance, that will be traded without tariffs um, between Europe and, and, and the Mercosur uh, member states. Um, and it's important to note that the current trade with beef and a lot of these other products that are, that are quoted 
are much higher already currently with tariffs than than the amount foreseen in the quota. So it's not really that it will significantly increase the trade between Europe, the, the European Union and the Mercosur countries. It will just make a lot of these products cheaper. And of course, a lot of domestic producers in Europe see that as a threat. Uh, but of course, to them, it also means that they will be able to export um, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to the Mercosur markets as well. And I mean, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, these are big markets. And there's a lot of consumers there that will be interested in buying European products uh, at a cheaper price than they currently are. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions here. Um, and then, of course, there's the environmental question as well. So in uh, February this year, uh, the European Union addressed a letter to the Mercosur member states in which it essentially makes new demands on top of the existing trade agreement. Uh, I assume this was because there were additional pressures from environmental groups and it says that they want additional guarantees on the protection of the amazon rainforest we've talked about the amazon rainforest here uh, on the podcast in the past and we also had some articles but you know inherently the, the problem is that uh, a lot of this was uh, in what was it january february 2020 and then COVID happened and i think a lot of us just really didn't register you know sort of like what was happening with that we did some myth busting on 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 the fires that were that were happening uh, the, the the forest fires that were happening uh, there, um, and you know you know we were addressing a lot as well the the sort of inconsistencies in which you know if you fly over a European country you see very little forestry compared to a lot of the South American nations and it's very Eurocentric to sort of take the approach of saying oh well we got rich because we developed agriculture and we cut down all those trees and and you won't be able to do that uh, but even in comparison to that because of the increased efficiency of of Brazilian agriculture compared to compared to ours, um, not that much forest cutting will be happening, and it's 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 very how to say it? it's 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 taking those countries out of their agency to now also pretend that we can take we can do the environmental policy for them, um, and then we can sort of control that. and And I think this has been a consistent problem with EU trade policy, is that we take the approach that. Unless you do exactly what we would do, we can't have trade. And that's obviously not how trade works. And maybe that's why President Lula is of the opinion that, you know, somebody will eventually have to give in. He has made it very clear that he's not interested in making any annexes to the existing trade agreement. I hope he's, you know, willing to sign the, the exist, existing one. Um, I mean, Brazil is not the only country in the Mercosur agreement, in the Mercosur agreement. Uh, 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 you know, trade trade association or whatever they're called, um, but but he certainly seems to be the most vocal one. I mean, it's, you, you very rarely hear like Paraguay and Argentina say much about this. I wonder what they think. But he's he's definitely very communicative, and you know, and then he was at a, you know in press conference he was also asked about Russia, and he's very wrong on this. Uh, but you know, that's his own prerogative. Um, he. Uh, I mean, it's good that he rejects the annex because, you know, whatever the letter was supposed to be, it wasn't very clear that, you know, those who sent the letter were really of the opinion that this should be sort of added to to the to the agreement. I mean, are these commitments that will be held in the in, in the trade treaty or, or not? It's not entirely clear. And um, and I think it makes sense for him to reject that ultimately uh, and for us to move forward on this trade agreement because it's been an awful long time and one of the things that we've said is that you know when Europe is not active on, on on trade in South America, then other countries will. I mean, President Lula just you know 
echoed that view as well. And I, and I mean, it's just correct. And China has a, an incredible trade presence already in South America. And it makes sense for Europe to have an anchor in that too. But now let's move to the interview of the week. Uh, we are talking to Amrit Nanda. She's the executive manager of Plants for the Future, European technology platform. She has a PhD in plant molecular biology and physiology from the Australian National University. And she pursued her academic research in Japan, the Philippines and Sweden, specializing on plant development in response to abiotic stress. Um, and uh, she has quite the bio and is just the right person for us to talk to about the new rules on gene editing. So take it away. So the European Commission has decided to allow some new genomic techniques to be allowed on the marketplace uh, in the future. And a lot of uh, confusion seems to be going around on Twitter about the exact rules uh, that uh, will have to be changed here. And some activists are not too happy about it either. They say we are just being sold frankenfood. So Amrit, are you the one uh, responsible for selling us frankenfoods in the future? No. So so basically, yeah, it's, it's actually a very complex issue because it's not that they were not allowed on the market or that they are not allowed on the market at the moment. It's just that they currently fall under the GMO directive, so the GMO regulation. Uh, and basically that regulation uh, in and of itself is, uh, is okay, but the actual implementation of it ever since it was put into force in the early 2000s has meant that no single product has been accepted for cultivation in Europe ever since that legislation was put in place. So it's, it's not actually that they're not av- can't get on the market, it's just that they won't <laughs> under the current situation. So what the Commission is now doing is suggesting a new legislation with some more proportionate rules, considering that NGTs are very different from the classical GMOs. Right. And, you know, this debate has happened in Europe for a long time already. And other countries that, you know, sometimes we also trade with, have allowed a, a gen- genetically engineered food to be on the market. So give the audience who might have followed this a little bit, um, uh, but doesn't isn't too sure about the specifics, a bit of a rundown because they heard of GMO, they heard of genetic engineering, and they think, well, that's you know both have genes in the word. So what's the difference? Can you can you give us a TLDR on you know sort of for the for the for the regular audience consumer here uh, what the difference actually is? Well. Basically, GMOs are genetically modified organisms. So they are a product. They can be a plant, a microorganism, an animal, basically anything, any living organism that has been genetically modified. Genetic engineering is actually a term that is more used in the US. We don't really use it in Europe. And it just, it means changing genes. But actually, when we do breeding or even just crossing, for example, for plants, we just do normal selection and crossing plants we, that have interesting characteristics. That is genetic change because we are actually changing the genes of the plants to suit our needs. Uh, GMOs is the next level where you actually say, well, this completely unrelated plant or, or microorganism has an interesting gene. I'm just going to pick that up and stick it in the other, uh, in this plant that I like. Uh, and that um, when it came up was very new and really, you know, groundbreaking. Um, and it scared a lot of people uh, because it, it was new. So even though uh, the science showed that there were no additional risks compared to uh, con- traditional breeding, uh, there was a lot of skepticism. Uh, and, and rightly so. In the beginning, you know, you never know. 
and, and time should tell. Uh, but now, 30 years down the line, uh, time has shown that they are safe. They are as safe as conventional. But we are still stuck in that mindset of they're probably not. Or let's maybe not take that risk. Right. It's a, it's a very precautionary uh, uh, approach to, to the issue. And, and I was sort of curious, um, where do you identify sort of the origins of the skepticism? Is it, um, is it just people who are just very entrenched on their views and don't want to change their mind? Is it a media problem? Because I've seen those thumbnails with a syringe stuck in an apple. Um, who, who's, who's at fault here? Or is it maybe multifactorial? It is multifactorial. I, I don't think we can say this is the fault of of anyone. I think a lot of things were mismanaged. Uh, it was so new. Um, and I think from the scientist's perspective, because I have a background in science, but this was before my time at least, or I was still studying at that time. Um, it was basically, a scientist will never tell you this is 100% safe without a doubt. Because science is the study of things and everything changes. Our perception of, of everything in the world changes as we learn more. You know, there was a time when we thought the earth was flat and the scientists at that time would say it was flat. There is no question. But in the end, we learn new things and then we have to reassess. And we saw this a lot during, for example, the corona uh, pandemic where, uh, you know, scientists were coming and saying, well, to the best of our knowledge at this moment, you should probably do that. And then they would come back a few you know, weeks or months later saying, well, actually, maybe it's better to do that. And, and I think that confused a lot of people because if you're not exposed to that kind of way of thinking, um, everyone wants a yes or no answer. And, and so I think the scientists at that time were being cautious and saying, well, it's probably not more risky or, or more hazardous than traditional breeding, but you know, we can't guarantee that 100%. Uh, and I think then there was, um, you have to remember that GMOs also came out around the time that we had mad cow disease in Europe. And also very close to the time of the Chernobyl kind of nuclear disaster. So there were situations where, you know, the science had failed us in a way where we said, this is safe, this is fine. And actually there was a disaster. So this kind of all, you know, melted into the general kind of perception of things. It was also around the time there was this whole grassroots movements towards more natural, more organics, getting back to the roots and moving away from technology and, you know, capitalism, big companies. So I think this all kind of merged into this whole mismatch that we've somehow never actually gotten out of. Uh, and we see a lot of these uh, kind of arguments and issues reflected in the discussion on NGTs now. And so for those listening and who say, OK, well, some people might just be very entrenched on their views and, and they, you know, they associated with, you know, big corporations and evil scientists to get everything wrong. But OK, what do we actually need this for? So can you give us sort of the rundown? What are the advantages? Because some consumers will just go to the supermarket now and say, well, look, everything's stocked up. The food's there. Um, why do we need new uh, new seeds? Uh, what's 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 the value? Yeah, I think um, I think our biggest challenge is that most consumers or citizens don't actually know about plant breeding. So now I'm talking only about plants, but it applies to anything that we breed. Uh, they don't know that everything we eat has been and is being bred. So so every year, more than four thousand varieties in the Europe 
are being added to the, the variety list, uh, the common catalog of varieties. So there are new varieties coming out all the time. They always have to show some kind of improvement, whether it's a higher yield, you know, tastier fruit, uh, or, or being uh, yeah, more resistant to certain pests. Uh, or requiring less fertilizer, they, they all have some kind of benefit. So breeding is just kind of a, a you know, a, yeah, I wouldn't say a hamster wheel, but you're just always bringing new things out because you always have to adapt. Uh, and so you're constantly improving. Uh, NGTs are just another technology because there's so many different technologies that go into breeding. And as we've, you know, evolved, learned more about biology, about genetics, um, we've just been improving. How can we do this faster, more efficiently, saving cost and having more diversity? And, and NGTs are just another example of that. We replicate something that happens naturally. This was found in bacteria originally. And then we've actually found a way to apply this to plants so that we can just actually add. So what we do when we breed is that we add diversity and then we select for the, the characteristics that we want uh, out of that diversity. And then we kind of sort through or kind of get rid of everything we don't want. Uh, and with NGTs, you can actually just make the one change that you do want without having all that background that you need to get rid of. So um, what takes the longest in breeding is getting rid of that background. So if you skip that whole thing, you can actually go from a breeding program that is perhaps 10 to 15 years to a breeding program that's only five years. And so it makes it less costly. It makes it easier uh, and so you can do more, basically. So instead of spending 15 years, you know, making one variety, you could potentially spend 15 years making three or four varieties because your costs are lower, so you can do more things. So it will ultimately bring more diversity. Uh, in, in terms of resistance to pests, it's really interesting because basically when you have a disease resistance introduced in, in a plant, um, you basically have a co-evolution between the pest and the plant. So you will maybe spend 10, 15 years introducing your disease resistance gene into your plant, and then you will put it on the market, and then it will have to deal with the pest who needs the plants to survive. So it's going to basically evolve to overcome that resistance. And so usually we say uh, that within five years, a resistance gene is overcome. So. If, if you see that you spend 10 to 15 years introducing this disease resistance and then within five years, potentially it's already overcome, then you need to spend another, you know, in the meantime, you're applying pesticides. So basically, if you can reduce the amount of time that you need to provide new varieties, you will be more, you know, more dynamic and you'll be able to respond to the needs faster and actually reduce overall the needs to complement with pesticides. Now, Plants for the Future has also released a press release in which you guys uh, talk about um, the specifics of uh, what the commission has proposed here. Uh, can you explain for the audience, because um, now we just talked about the general approach to it, but this commission proposal, does it go in the right direction? What is missing? What, what are we getting with this? Yeah, well, I think it's a very balanced uh, approach. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, consultations with stakeholders, with scientists and so on. And I think uh, overall, it's quite a balanced uh, proposal that's being put forward. Um, it acknowledges that these techniques, so NGTs by itself are just techniques. And what you can do with them is, is huge. Uh, and so basically, it doesn't make sense to, to regulate the technology itself and just say, well, whether you make one small change or one giant change, it's the same 
um, yeah, it's the same product. No, it, it's very different. So it's moving away from kind of regulating the technology and looking more at the product. And so it's suggesting two categories. Uh, one being uh, what we like to call the conventional-like categories. So it's basically any technology, so any AGT that is used um, to obtain a new plant variety that you could have obtained with conventional breeding. It would have just been a lot more complicated and taken a lot longer. Um, and so for those, we, at least at the platform, believe that they should be regulated as conventional because EFSA has also confirmed, so EFSA is the, the European Food Safety Authority, uh, they have confirmed that uh, in those cases where they're undistinguishable from conventional bred counterparts, they are as safe. Uh, so, so we see those as being uh, conventional-like, and, and this is what the regulation is suggesting, that you would actually not have to go through a lengthy risk assessment and so on, but you would actually just do a notification or a verification procedure to show that they are similar to conventional, uh, and then you would be able to do field trials and put it on the market. Um, there are still some... Um, yeah, of course, there, there needs to be some transparency. So it will be uh, listed in uh, public databases, in the common catalog that, that, for example, the farmers will use to select their varieties. So they would be able to choose whether or not they want uh, plants that have been developed using NGTs. And, and at the moment, the commission is also suggesting that the seed bags uh, should be actually labeled. But uh, they don't see a need to um, have it labeled, have the end product labeled for the consumer because in the end, the product is the same as a conventionally bred product. The, the second category is more, uh, more closer to more GM, uh, GMOs. So uh, these will still have to go through a risk assessment that will be on a case per case basis. Um, these are basically um, uh, foreign DNA that will be introduced um, in, in the similar way that uh, for GMO that was done, but it's done in a much more uh, precise and, and in a way cleaner way, if you could say that. Uh, and so it should not have the high level of risk that is perceived for um, traditional GMOs. So they will go on, a, on a, yeah, a lighter base. They will, in theory, be able to get on the market uh, more easily compared to, to the deadlock we have now for, for classical GMOs. And one important point, actually, is that when the GMO directive was put in place in the early 2000s, uh, quickly the following years, another legislation followed, which allowed each member state in the EU to opt out of cultivating GM um, plants, uh, which means that even if you did get something approved for the market for cultivation in Europe, 19 out of the 27 member states have opted out of growing GM. So your market is tiny. Currently in the EU, only Spain and Portugal grows GM crops. Uh, and that's a GM crop that was approved before the directive was put in place. So what's really interesting about the legislative proposal is that uh, the countries are not allowed to opt out of growing these uh, NGT, Category 2 NGTs. So uh, what it does, and, and it, the idea is not to force the countries if they don't want uh, to grow it, but the idea is to ensure that there is a market for it, because otherwise uh, there's no incentive for breeding companies to develop for Europe uh, products um, of that category. Yeah, when we previously had Dr. Graham Brooks on the on the podcast to talk about uh, the examples of Spain and Portugal, it was very interesting when he laid out sort of the overall uh, advantages of, of those crops having been available for the last 20 years uh, in those two countries. Um, how quickly can we expect consumers to 
actually purchase something in the supermarket that will have been, uh, you know, uh, derived from through NGTs? Yeah, that's um, the timeline is pretty long because uh, it takes a while. And unfortunately, next year we have parliamentary elections, which means that basically they'll they'll be kind of, um, yeah, a a break in between so the parliament wants to get this through they want to look at it they want to move forward with it but they'll only be able to go so far until about march um and then they there'll be an election the new parliament will come in and so they probably won't get back to work until end of 24 uh, so we're we're hoping that by 20 end of 25 26 there will be a decision both at parliament and uh, and council level so the council keeps going, but in the end, they need to have to come to a common agreement. Um, so once the legislation is adopted or, or uh, comes into um, into act, <laughs> um, there is in the in the proposal basically. Then you need to complement that with secondary legislation for implementation, and so that will actually uh, you know write out exactly how uh, these things are supposed to work, who's responsible for what, and what are the timelines, and so on. And in the current proposal, the commission says that this will be done within two years of the adoption of the final proposal. So even if we do have this adoption by 26, um, the implementation will not be done until 28. And it's only at that time that the companies and even research institutes and so on will be able to start field trials in Europe. And you need at least two or three years of field trials to get a product approved um, to the common catalog so that you can commercialize it. So uh, I always say, uh, because there's a lot of, well, you know, they can definitely contribute to sustainability. And there is the farm to fork strategy that a lot of people are looking at. By 2030, we need to have reduced um, chemical inputs and so on. But NGTs will not contribute to that because they won't be ready by 2030. I think we will have our first products on the market available to consumers by at best 2030. But those will be the very first ones. Um, we might get imports a little bit sooner, um, but they would still need to go through um, this approval to be imported. And so they would still not be able to apply for import um, into the EU before 28, in theory. And that is if everything goes well and the, the parliament doesn't take too long. <laughs> Wow, we're getting we're definitely getting a star, a new Star Wars trilogy before we get <laughs> before we get NGTs on the market. Uh, we're about out of time here, uh, Amrit, and so I just wanted to ask you for the consumers who say, "Oh, this is all super interesting," but my last biology lesson has been uh, dating a while back. What is a good place for people to educate themselves on this issue to understand it better? Well, there's there's a lot of interesting videos I've seen on YouTube. We're also trying to to do more, develop more kind of information, educational material. There's a lot of of science communication organizations uh, that are developing different products. I I couldn't pick one out uh, just at random, but there are some very good ones. Uh, I think uh, you know, looking back, what I was saying at how GMOs failed. Um, scientists have realized that they they could have done better. You know, everyone realized they could have done better, but the scientists also. So there is um, there is more effort being put into communicating this to to kind of demystifying not only NGTs but plant breeding per se, and really showing that this is just an evolution of methods that are becoming you know more precise and more efficient. 
So there is actually a lot of information out there. We provide some fact sheets of, you know, a 101 on plant breeding on our website. We even did a campaign on Give CRISPR a Chance, uh, you know, really showing that, uh, you know, it's, it's a positive thing. It's not something we should be afraid of. Uh, and, and as products start coming on the market, uh, we'll see that we're actually going to get a, a bigger variety of, of products, more choice, healthier products because it's easier to then multiplex a lot of different characteristics into plants with this technology. So uh, hopefully th there is information out there. It's not always easy to find if you're just cruising through social media, but, but there is information. Uh, I would recommend, yeah, our website is not a, a typical kind of outreach website, but we do try uh, and we will in the future try more to provide that information. I've seen the commission has also done one of their stick figure videos already. So uh, people True. who like to consume that can find that uh, on, on, on their website as well. Uh, and we will be putting some of those uh, resources in our show notes of this podcast as well. Uh, Amrit Nanda, thank you so much for the, those explanations and uh, for coming on the Consumer Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can't follow Amrit Nanda on Twitter because she doesn't use it, but you can follow Plants for the Future uh, at plant underscore ETP. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody.